Hi, this is Drew. We're actually uh, reposting uh, one of our earliest episodes with uh, Dr. N. Scott Amos, who's uh, one of the leading scholars on the 16th century reformer Martin Bucer, who's sometimes an overlooked reformer, but is important both in the con- for uh, the Continental and English Reformations. And the reason I'm reposting this is because um, I found myself, uh, well, I'm, I'm doing, I'm teaching, I'm the teaching assistant for a class I'm doing at Institute of Lutheran Theology and, you know, where I'm doing my doctorate. And one of the requirements is that you have to TA a couple classes, um, you know, for undergrad students or grad students. And um, uh, one of the requirements of this class I'm I'm uh, TAing is I had to, uh, you know, take a couple class sessions to, to lead or lecture for. And uh, the prof thought it'd be a good idea with my Anglican background to do uh, when we do the English Reformation to have me do that lecture. And so I found myself in preparing for this, revisiting uh, this, this, this uh, article that Dr. Amos wrote on Martin Bucer and his uh, influence on the Book of Common Prayer, or at least the subsequent editions of the Book of Common Prayer following the original 1549 edition. And so... Um, found myself revisiting that and uh, reminded me of this great conversation I had with Dr. Amos that I was blessed to have. And so we're just going to repost it um, since it's, uh, you know, as, as the episodes continue and we add more, um, uh, you know, and more people discover it, you know, we want to, it's a good way to maybe just to, just to put some of the older ones up front again. And so I really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, we, we, there's a good case Dr. Amos makes at Boots that we are very indebted, uh, liturgically, Anglicans are, to, uh, to Martin Bootser's influence. And uh, so it was great to have an episode about this interesting person that, uh, you know, as I said, is, is sometimes uh, overlooked. And so, um, so I hope you enjoy uh, listening to or listening to again if you already have. And so uh, Dr. Amos, uh, I actually hope to have him on again in the next few months. I'm going to reach out to him. Uh, he served as the editor for a book that has been published since the original publication of the, this episode you're going to listen to. Uh, and it was in the series for Reformation Commentary on Scripture, which are basically a compendiums of, uh, you know, volumes uh, where, they, where they bring together some of the uh, uh, commentaries and, uh, of, made by reformers um, of, of, of the different books of the Bible. Dr. Amos served as an editor for Volume 4, which is on Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. Uh, and it's, the, the series is kind of, it's, it's in the same mold as perhaps if you've come across like the, the ancient Christian commentary uh, volumes or, or I think there's also one for medieval. And so they're, uh, they're doing, there's a Reformation one that's uh, being, uh, it's ongoing being made right now. So uh, Dr. Amos served uh, as the editor for the volume on Joshua, Judges, and Ruth. And so I hope to bring him on to maybe discuss that volume and and uh, perhaps maybe to tell us a little bit more about that series. And so, uh, but anyways, uh, we will be on, Doth Protest will be on break for a few weeks for the holidays. Um, and so uh, well, we're going to come back strong uh, the beginning of the year, the beginning of the calendar year, 2023, with our fourth hymns episode. And then we have a couple interesting interviews lined up in January and February. We have another great scholar on Martin Luther, not Martin Bootser, but Martin Luther to, to come and talk to us uh, in that time frame. And so uh, we look forward to having you all tune in again and, and wish you a happy Thanksgiving and a, 
good Advent, Merry Christmas, and uh, God's blessings for the rest of this year. We'll, we'll uh, uh, look forward to having you tune in again. God bless. Uh, good morning, afternoon, evening, whenever and wherever this episode finds you at. We are very honored to have as our guest on today's episode, a distinguished scholar of the Reformation, Dr. Scott Amos. Dr. Amos is the professor of history and chair of history department at the University of Lynchburg. He holds a PhD in the English Reformation and Continental Reformation, sorry, as well, and from the University of St. Andrews as well as degrees from Westminster Theological Seminary, College of William and Mary, and Old Dominion University. He's been published in journals such as Reformation and Renaissance Review, Renaissance Studies, and Westminster Theological Journal. He's the author of the book, Bootser, Ephesians, and Biblical Humanism, The Exegete as Theologian, which was published in 2015. And he is the editor of the upcoming fourth volume of the Reformation Commentary on Scripture series, um, the one for the books of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, and uh, which we, have, if we have time, maybe I'll ask him a little bit about at the end of our uh, episode. So uh, Dr. Amos holds numerous awards and honors, and his areas of expertise include uh, the English Reformation, Tudor England, the Swiss Reformation, the Italian Renaissance, and uh, primarily the 16th century Martin Bucer, who uh, we will be spending this episode uh, discussing and learning about. So how are you today, Dr. Amos? Uh, doing pretty well. Could do with a little more sunshine. We haven't had a lot of that in Virginia lately. It's actually been a lot like uh, my time in St. Andrews. Yesterday in particular, uh, dreaky, wet, foggy, cold. Kind, yeah. of, kind of grim. I was across the pond there, not at St. Andrews, mm -hmm. uh, only once in my life. And I remember that being very common, foggy too. <laughs> and so, yeah. uh, well, and, and it's, uh, bu it's bucket rain. I'm in Louisiana, so it's, it's raining buckets literally here. Oh, um, <laughs> uh, when it does, it doesn't rain a lot, but when it does, it's, it's just very wet and it's just right. a damp, humid place in, uh, in general. And so, uh, like our last episode for our listeners, they, they kind of got a faint, tranquil rain sound pattering on the roof. And so maybe they'll get that uh, for this episode as well. So some, some podcasts have ambient, ambient backgrounds. <laughs> this will be ours. Um, yeah. <clears throat> well, thank you for being here. And I am curious because I know you work in academia, uh, how COVID-19 uh, has affected your work. Well, for me, it's not been that big a disruption because I teach in an old-fashioned way, I lecture. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the, uh, the university has a couple of approaches to this right now. They've, uh, they've got a hybrid approach where they have <clears throat> some classes in person or some sessions, you know, some courses that are hybrid have a certain number of sessions that are in person. Uh, with all of the appropriate uh, protections, and then 
a, 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 an online session that can either be synchronous, meaning it's at the same time as the regularly scheduled class would be, so that maintains as much continuity on that level, or asynchronous, meaning they pick it up, it's, it's recorded and the students pick it up whenever they can. Um, and then there are those of us who, who do it all online, synchronous or asynchronous. And I happen to do it asynchronous, meaning that I record a couple of lectures. I treat it like a Tuesday, Thursday class, and I record a couple of lectures a week and post them using Moodle as our, uh, as our um, point of contact. And students log in and, and view the lectures and do everything through Moodle. So I have a record of that and I can track what they're doing and when they're not doing stuff and prom prod them to, to do what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah. Um, so, funny, I mean, for the funny. most part, it's been fine, but it, you know, it is detached. And, yeah, it's detached. And, uh, yeah. After a while, you get pretty lonely for that human contact. You do. And that, um, and that presence. <clears throat> right. I was telling Dr. Amos, uh, for our listeners, I was telling Dr. Amos before our uh, episode how I, I work at a, a pre-K through eight school um, and, uh, you know, started out as just the minister, but I, I've been, I became the school chaplain, you know, not long ago. And uh, now I'm teaching uh, fourth through eighth grades. And anyways, we started school fully in person in the fall. And um, uh, most parents are, are supportive of, of that. They wanted their kids to have, like you said, the, the the presence, the interaction, um, and especially for younger ages, it's, it's huge. But I even imagine for college, um, for, for an undergrad, especially, um, it's, it's, it's even if it's just sitting in the classroom, there's still, uh, the dynamics are still important, uh, having a live lecture and having that type yeah. of interaction. Mm -hmm. and, uh, online schools are in different places with, uh, where I go, where, where, we're live, I guess it'd be synchronous. <laughs> we're like, we, right. uh, every Tuesday evening I meet and we do, um, we're live together on different screens, mm -hmm. kind of like Dr. Amos and I are now for three hours. And so, yeah, it's just, there's different philosophies behind how to do education different. I mean, this is, this was stuff going on, of course, before COVID and, you know, now it's higher education has been, has been forced like it or not to kind of grapple more with it. So, um, yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, yeah. Well, uh, so uh, we'll move right on in. So okay. based on your areas of interest, uh, which, you know, they seem rather broad, um, well, broad on one end, but they're all obviously related. Uh, that It's kind of a general time period you are really an expert of, but you definitely devoted your scholarly work um, to all things Reformation, in a sense. Uh, for quite some time. Um, and what led to your interest initially in this uh, epoch or chapter of church history? Well, uh, I mean, my interest in history goes back to when I was a boy and we lived in Italy for a year and a half to two years. Uh, my father was in the army. We lived in Vicenza, Italy. So I mean, you're surrounded by ancient and medieval and Renaissance history. And so my orientation was always towards European history, which I studied in, in at university. And then when I went into grad school, I focused more narrowly on Tudor England. And, uh, but also 
cultivated more closely an interest in the Reformation. And then when I went to seminary, I, uh, in my church history courses as much as I could, and in the THM that I did at Westminster, I focused on, uh, on the European Reformation, and in particular began to zero in on Martin Bucer, who is someone about whom not a great deal, is not as much has been done as one would expect for someone who shows up in so many different places as an important medial figure. And, uh, and so that carried on through to my work at St. Andrews, which combined both my interest in Tudor England, as well as my interest in Martin Bucer. It allowed for, for, for cross-fertilization, so to speak, there because of the fact that he spent the last two years of his life at the University of Cambridge as Regis Professor of Divinity, which was what the focus of my uh, dissertation was on. And so that's how I came to that. I mean, and 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 uh, you know, given my own ecclesial background, Presbyterian, I was inclined. I was interested in Reformed theology. And Bootser is again a a interesting figure in that respect because he's so influent. He's he was so influential on John Calvin at an early stage of Calvin's career. But he's also someone who shows up in so many other places. I mean, he, he, he worked with Luther. He worked. He attempted to mediate between Luther and Zwingli. He worked in the, uh, in the context of the colloquies of the uh, 1530s and 1540s to try to compose the differences within the German Empire between Protestant and Catholic. And, uh, and so he's just an intensely interesting figure. And so I was just drawn to that. And the fact is, is that, as I say, not a lot has been, not as much has been done on him as one would expect. And so there was ample, there was more scope for saying something original about Martin Bootser than there would be about Martin Luther. I mean, there were times when people would ask me, what are you studying? I'd say Martin Bootser, but they would hear Martin Luther. <laughs> and I'd say Martin Bootser because, and, and because not much has been written about him. That, you know, of course they heard Martin Luther. What do you say? You're nuts. Of course, tons have been written about Martin Luther. No, 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 no. It's Bootser, Bootser. Yeah, it's funny whenever I whenever I hear Martin Bootser, it's like it kind of sounds like Martin Luther, but it's not Martin. Yeah. Luther. No, <laughs> and they're no. both 16th century or oh, yeah. Um yeah. Well, it's uh, so yeah, we're bringing Doctor Amos Amos on to talk about Martin Bootser. Um, and I, I have found, you know, I I I don't remember when I heard about Bootser. Some some point in church history studies, I don't know if it was seminary or what. Um, and I've always I've taken an interest whenever I've come across him, I've taken an interest in him. Um, but I've never like like you, I've never devoted my life work to him. But uh, Bootser, he, he is an overlooked figure in the Reformation. And often when I think of like or when commonly when people think of like the top 16th century reformers, it's usually Luther, Calvin. Um, uh, if it's th- if there's three mentioned, it's Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli, of course, who you mentioned a moment ago. And if there is ever a number four, a lot of times it's uh, Thomas Cramner, uh, due to him really being behind, uh, at least initially, you know, the English Reformation, the church reforms um, in the Church of England during that time, especially liturgical uh, reforms. Uh, I, I think even like the broad scope of of American Protestantism. Um, use it, you know, because the Book of Common Prayer was the first English worship resource, uh, mm-hmm. they even go back in many of their kind of prose and the language back to the prayer book. And so right. grammar's influential, but um, so it's really neat that we get to talk about uh, Bootser today. And, um, and of course, we'll be hearing a little bit about Cramner today as well. 
So uh, today we primarily look at your work in the article, Martin Bootser and the revision of the 1549 Book of Common Prayer. Uh, and so this article zeroes in on the influence that Bootser had on the uh, first book of, um, the influence he had not on the first book of Common Prayer, I'm sorry, the, uh, it would be the second, which we'll get into. And just for our listeners, um, Episcopalians will know, but uh, in, the, in the Episcopal Church and in the Worldwide Anglican Church, the Book of Common Prayer has been our primary resource for every uh, worship, uh, you know, every every rite we do, whether it's uh, the Holy Eucharist, you know, wedding, funeral, uh, our daily prayers, our morning office. Um, that's what we use in church. That's what we read from for our worship. Um, and so... But uh, so, Dr. Amos, your article uh, starts out with Cramner after the publication of the 1549 prayer book. He is looking to do further liturgical reform and he seeks advice from other reformers, particularly reformers in continental Europe where adjacent reformations, so to speak, were going on. Why did he uh, reach out to them? And uh, well, I guess it's a two part question. Why did he reach out to them? And what was the reason for? him looking to do further liturgical reform. Right, yeah. Um, well, as Dermot McCulloch uh, makes clear in his massive biography on Thomas Cranmer, of Thomas Cranmer, uh, Cranmer at that moment came to see that England was in a position to take the Reformation forward in a unique way. Uh, as a result of circumstances that came to play at that at that time, Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, had defeated the Protestant Schmalkaldic League at the Battle of Newburgh in 1547, and things looked pretty bleak for the continued success of the Reformation and Protestantism, uh, not just in Germany, but more broadly speaking than that. And uh, it looked pretty grim. And so England became, at that moment, the last hope of the Reformation, because, of course, in 1547, Edward VI came to the throne, and Edward VI and his, his, uh, the Lord Protector, his uncle, uh, uh, the Duke of Somerset, Edward Seymour, were committed Protestants. And, of course, Cranmer was there as well to lead uh, and finally have an opportunity to openly pursue uh, Reformation. He'd been doing it um, sort of on the margins uh, during Henry VIII's reign, but you could only be but so evangelical around Henry VIII without <laughs> risking dire consequences. But now they, those shackles are freed. And so Cramner was able to actively pursue a reformation. And it came at the same time as things began to look, so, so things brightened up considerably for England and things looked considerably darker on the continent. And so the confluence of those two facts uh, led Cramner to see that England could become a model going forward for reform. Uh, <clears throat> and he also made uh, England a, uh, the refuge of choice for many exiled reformers, and quite a constellation of them gathered around his court uh, between 1547 and 1549. Peter Martyr Vermeule, uh, a great Italian reformer and fellow worker with uh, Butzer in Strasbourg, is, is one of the leading lights. And, and a host of others who are lesser known but now, but at the time, were regarded as important contributors to the, to the tradition. And Bootser would come to become one of those as well, one of these exiled refugees at his court. And uh, so 
Cranmer was able to draw on them as he moved forward with the English Reformation now fully unleashed. And, uh, and so that is the context for the decision to, to, uh, to undertake a further reform, further revision of the 49 prayer book, which of course was the first English service book, but which even to his own mind hadn't gone quite far enough. But then there was a, there, there was a policy of the Cranmer's following of uh, hastening, careful, hastening, festina lente, hasten slowly and pursuing a more measured approach to reform, doing it by stages. And, and, and so that's the broader context for why Cranmer chose to, uh, to take up this cause and to take up this task and to draw on these people uh, in order to, to advance the cause of the Reformation. Okay. Um, so uh, one of the reformers uh, that Cranmer <clears throat> seeks advice from is Martin Bootser. You told us a little bit about him. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned that uh, Bootser, prior to his contact with Cramner uh, was involved with, and we'll probably get some good biographical info out of this because I'm not familiar with Bootser really before he comes over to England. Um, <laughs> he was involved right. with an admittedly failed attempt at the Archdiocese of Cologne, as your article mm-hmm. puts it. Maybe for our listeners, could you explain uh, briefly what those those reforming efforts in Cologne entail? I'm not I'm not familiar with it myself, um, so I was, you know I was, I was wondering what the Kind of curious about that. Right, right. Right. Well, um, this took place in 1542 to 1543. Uh, in the aftermath of the failure at Regensburg, the Regensburg colloquy, which was a brief moment when it looked like the Protestant and Catholic were going to be able to come to an agreement upon the doctrine of justification. And Bootser was very much involved in that task, wow. along with Johann Kropper, who is the Catholic theologian that worked with them on the, uh, the materials produced for the Regensburg Colloquy. But it collapsed because you know, moderate men lose sight of the fact that the, the hardliners on both sides aren't going to be impressed by these kinds of arguments. And Luther snorted and said no, and the Pope said no, and so it all went to pieces. And so it looked like the moment had passed for being able to, to bring about a path forward for uh, calming the waters mm-hmm. in, in, in Germany, in the, in the Holy Roman Empire. But in 1542, Hermann von Fied, who was the Archbishop of Cologne and a moderate Catholic inclined towards reform, wanted to push forward with a reform of his diocese. And so he called upon Bootser and Melanchthon, Philip Melanchthon, to help him in creating a set of reforming ordinances for the diocese of Cologne, Archdiocese of Cologne. And the emphasis, and, and, and the Melanchthon did all the doctrinal work in, the, in, this, uh, in these ordinances, and Bootser took on the liturgical work. Very fitting for both of them, if anyone knows their... Uh... Yeah. That's who, that's yeah. definitely them. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it was ultimately published under the title of Simplex Ac Pia Deliberatio. And the, the emphasis in this reforming plan was on a careful, measured reform that would proceed by stages, recognizing the conservatism of virtually all of the priests and all the people, but still wanting to find ways to bring reform forward. 
uh, it took a very measured approach to this and, and allowed for a lot of traditional things to be unchanged, but made more space for the preaching of the word. And Bootser, as well as von Fied, were convinced that uh, if the preaching of the word could go forward without the kinds of restrictions that had been imposed to that point, that ultimately the people themselves would be convinced of the truth of the Reformation, the truth of evangelical doctrine, and a lot of these traditional sorts of things would gradually fall away. And the result would be a reformed and Protestant pattern of, of, of church structure and worship and, and belief. And there was a larger political context for this effort because Hermann von Bede was also one of the seven electors of the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, the others were the Archbishops of Trier and Mainz and the Duke of Saxony and the, uh, the Count Palatine of the Rhine and the Margrave of Brandenburg and the King of Bohemia. So there are seven of these individuals had the title elector. And they were the ones who chose each subsequent Holy Roman Emperor whenever there was vacant, whenever the emperor died. Uh, the succession was not necessarily to his son or grandson, as has happened in the case with Charles V. It had to be by election. And so uh, as things stood when this effort was undertaken, there were three Protestant electors and four Catholic electors. If this had succeeded, then there would have been four Protestant electors and three Catholic electors, and that would have changed the dynamics of politics in the Holy Roman Empire in ways that, well, we can speculate about, but it didn't happen because right. it, it, didn't, it didn't come off. Uh, <clears throat> Charles V quashed this effort, and so it went by the board. But uh, the other thing, the important thing to note about, the, uh, about this effort is politics aside, one of the people in Europe who took notice and followed closely what was going on in Cologne was Thomas Cranmer. And he sought to achieve something of the same thing in the English Reformation that had been attempted in Cologne. And how better to pursue that goal than to employ the draftsman of the revised liturgy for the archdiocese. And so this plays some of the, this is part of the story for Bootser's, Cramner's invitation to Bootser to come over. I think he would have invited him over anyway, but that gave a special impetus and attraction to bringing Bootser over uh, because of his involvement in that effort, which Cramner did use as a model for a lot of the work that he did in the 49 prayer book. He actually had two editions of that work translated and published in English okay. in, in, the, in, the, in, the 15, in 1547, 1548. So, I mean, it was already there as part of the background. So there are some, are there, even before bringing in Bootser to look at 1549, Bootser was involved with some even blueprints, you could say, for the right. 49 book. Right. Um, let's see, that's interesting, guy, because I know, uh, I've never heard of, what was the name of that colloquy that happened that you mentioned? Oh, Regensburg Colloquy. I'm interested in reading. I, I did, had no idea that, um, I guess, in that region that, that Catholics and Luther came, Lutherans came very close to a uh, agreement on justification. I mean, that's a pretty big deal for that time. If, if yeah. that was a, I'd be curious, I mean, I'd be curious to, to read more about that. Um, it, it's surprising, I guess I could say. Uh, is, mm-hmm. Grober, was that the name of the Catholic? G-R-O-P-P-E-R. Uh, P-P-E-R, okay. Um, so it sounds like, um, this is kind of leading my next question, but kind of going off what you just said, Bootser 
seems to have had a very, uh, uh, he seems like he, he was, on one end, I don't want to sound totally cynical, but like it sounds like his moderation or his, his moderateness was trying to sell, always trying to, they were just kind of maybe means to an end, just trying to sell a, a reform. Um, but, but I, I do wonder if there's something more else in it. Uh, my next question was about, um, you mentioned in your article, kind of from the 1530s onward, um, boots are actually, uh, you say increasingly valued traditional forms of, uh, worship, which I thought was interesting because he's a reformer and, um, uh, it's, it's of course not unheard of Luther, uh, for instance, many scholars would know or argue that he was more, uh, conservative, you could say, or more reserved in changes to worship traditions um, than a lot of the uh, other continental reformers mm-hmm. may have been, especially the reformed. Um, so do, do historians or have you come across anything about how why Bootser had uh, this tendency in him, this kind of a via media or uh, I don't want to say uh, via media, but, but more uh, slow incremental, you know, mm-hmm. the, the way he would pace um, right. this, uh, yeah, well, he was uh, he was steeped in the patristics, okay. and that's something which he shared with Cranmer. So it's something he shared with Matthew Parker, who was Elizabeth first first Archbishop of Canterbury, and who was actually Bootser's host in Cambridge because uh, Parker was the uh, the master of Corpus Christi College and sometime uh, vice chancellor of the University of Cambridge, and so he and Bootser had a lot to deal to do with each other. Um. But uh, you also have to reckon with the fact that uh, you know, Bootser first met Luther in 1518 at the Heidelberg, because Bootser is a student at the University of Heidelberg, and, and, and Luther had his famous Heidelberg disputation there. Mm-hmm. And so Bootser counted himself as a Lutheran from that point forward, a Martinian. And, uh, and that was his profile when he begins his career as a reformer in Strasbourg in 1523-1524. But he also began at that point to be drawn into the orbit of Zwingli. And with Zwingli, he shared something in common that he didn't have with Luther, and that was an attachment to Erasmus of Rotterdam. Mm, yeah. and, uh, and so through his connections with Zwingli, Luther became, or Bootser became more reformed, decidedly reformed in a Swiss sort of way than had been the case before. But through the course of the Lord's Supper controversy and his efforts at mediating between Luther and Zwingli uh, on that issue, uh, he was gradually drawn back in the direction of Luther to some degree, uh, partly because of his, his self-conscious effort to try to find a middle, middle point between the two so that Protestantism could present a united front in the empire, which it couldn't at that point, never really quite would. Um, And so um, to the extent that he becomes friendlier or more open or more supportive or more, uh, uh, to the extent that he values traditional forms of worship, it's, it's partly because of that context. And I think it also had to do with his recognition uh, by that point, that the uh, that reform would be hampered if you made too sharp a break with the past, in the way that some of the more zealous uh, reformed Swiss theologians would want to do, and he was, as I say, no doubt influenced by Luther in this regard. 
And, uh, but all of that being said, I mean, even, <clears throat> even in the light of what I say in the article about uh, he's, he's increasingly valuing traditional forms of worship, um, Butzer was still prepared for a measured movement away from traditional patterns of worship that would ultimately lead to change that was more rapid and more decisive than what Luther would, 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 would argue for. Luther was more content to allow things to pretty much stay as they were with adjustments. Uh, but Butzer was, and I think in this respect, like, like Cranmer, could see the reason for dispensing with a lot of these things, but prudently and practically recognized that the pace of change would have to be measured in order to bring the people along. For the sake of the sinful folk, they needed to retain certain things a longer period of time than they might want to, with the idea that with a sustained preaching of the word and a cultivation of a, uh, a reform, from their perspective, a reformed biblical worldview, then gradually these other things wouldn't be, wouldn't be needed, and so they could then be uh, phased out, so to speak. Um, yeah, that, that was kind of my, that was kind of my, uh, what I suspected too, as I was reading, I was like, well, he's a practical person. There's a practicality to, uh, you know, um, his approach to things. And I, and I think there's, you know, in many ways, there's a lot to be said about that and a lot to respect about that. Um, so, uh, so Bootser, uh, is brought over to England, uh, and he, he kind of looks at, he looks at the 1549 prayer book and he notices, uh, I guess, uh, what he maybe sees as weaknesses or things for f- further revision. Uh, what were some of those things? <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, he was concerned that there are too many rituals and actions, uh, that were, that the people knew to expect, but didn't really understand the purpose for it. And so it, you know, superstitions attached to them, as, as he would say. Um, elaborate vestments was another criticism. Uh, and the practice of anti-communion, you know, going through the entire communion service up to the point of distributing the elements, but then not distributing the elements. And the continuation of communion in private chapels, which smacked too much for his takes of private communion. Uh, the, the prayer commending the dead found in the, in the communion service. And he saw all of these as just making too many concessions. I and mean, he recognized that Cranmer was moving slowly. He recognized the challenge that Cranmer had to face with issuing a first prayer book. But he felt that Cranmer could not rest with that, that the change could not rest with that, and that too many concessions were made that needed to be uh, withdrawn but it was not always so much the particulars of the 49 prayer book, I think, that concerned him the most. But what, was, what concerned him was that without adequate preaching and catechetical instruction, uh, the common people would conclude that all of this continuity with what had been previous Catholic practice meant that, as Butzer feared, no change had really taken place. I mean, they wouldn't realize that there was a shift under the shift underway, that they would see this as continuity. And, and so, you know, what's all the fuss about in that respect? Uh, of course, that, that's not to overlook the, the one really substantial change, whatever one's take on the book is, and that's that worship is in English. 
which right. is a pretty radical change at that, that time. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there were there were people in, I think it was in Cornwall that uh, during the prayer book revolts of 49 that objected to this Christmas game. They just saw this as a bunch of mumbo jumbo. You know, we want to go back to the to the Catholic, you know, we want to go back to the Latin, Latin wow. of the mass. Yeah. And yeah. none of this, none of this jiggery pokery stuff that you're doing in English. And so, I mean, doing it in English was a pretty radical step yeah. forward. It would seem to me that the the whole bring you know putting it into the vernacular language would seem the most radical because, like you said, that's the most apparent change. Uh, like you said, if you have so much continuity with what was going on before, people hear that there's this reformation going on. They hear that there's these controversies, but they're like, it doesn't make any sense to what they're hearing about because they're coming to church and it's the same old it's the same old uh, thing. Uh, so yeah, I think that's that's. Uh, Interesting, but but definitely the the uh, bringing it into English um, and that actually kind of leads me to my next uh, question about uh, you know as far as uh, what people are hearing and perhaps what they're reading um, it, you know that's pretty apparent. But what as far as like rituals and gestures and the things that are were commonly done into the liturgy at that point, a lot of people were probably just doing it um from uh just just routinely and maybe not even thinking about it so interpretation was important to booster um <clears throat> and and interpreting uh for those who experience worship why the liturgy had certain ceremonies and ritual actions uh so how does that tie in uh really to the principles of the reformation uh kind of in general well i mean i yeah, I, I think what, what lies behind what Bootser is doing is, you know, it lines up with the principle of the authority of Scripture as the rule of faith and life. Uh, and from the perspective, you know, that, that's fundamental to a Reformed perspective, uh, which, broadly speaking, Luke Bootser certainly represents. Uh, Bootser did not hold to the Reformed view of the regulative principle, the, the narrower Reformed view of the regulative principle, meaning that you don't do anything in worship that isn't explicitly commanded by the word of God. Okay. Um, but rather, he was prepared to countenance things that were not explicitly commanded in Scripture. But that they should, and, and things, things could be practiced in worship which were not explicitly in conflict with Scripture. And of course, lurking in the background is the, is the idea of adiaphora, things indifferent, uh, a, as, as a principle for, for regulating these sorts, as, as a principle for approaching this question of what is permissible and impermissible, impermissible in worship. And it was incumbent upon, you know, Bootser believed that it was incumbent upon the minister to make sure that the flock understood what happened in worship in the light of Scripture. And so, you know, the interpretation comes in the context of the full preaching of the word and, and catechism, catech catechetical instruction based upon the word. And, and that's where the, uh, where from Bootser's perspective, uh, the, the mists of uncertainty would be dispelled and they would see clearly Yes, this is appropriate. No, that is no longer appropriate. Mm -hmm. But his concern was is that because of the, the state of preaching in England at that time at, you know, with the typical parish priest, that wasn't going to happen. Mm -hmm. And so, so it just continued to feed itself. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, uh, and that kind of leads me to my next question. You, you're talking about the... Um, kind of the state of preachers at the time. And I've heard from different popular and scholarly things on the Reformation that, oh, you know, it was uh, 
the, the, the typical preacher of that day was, um, may not even been well-versed in scripture, but just not, I guess just not good preaching and not, you know, the, the, I mean, first of all, it's in a different language anyways, but even if it would have been maybe brought into the common language, uh, they just, people would not have been able to get much from it. Um, so Bootser felt, uh, in coming to the church of England, that it was in serious need of capable ministers. Uh, what, what, what was a capable, I think you already touched a little bit on it, but I guess, you yeah. know, what, what, what do you think he would kind of see as a capable minister? Well, it follows on what we just discussed. A capable minister was one learned in the scriptures and capable of preaching and teaching the word and of interpreting the word and by extension, interpreting everything that was done in worship to make certain that the laity understood the actions in the light of the word. And hence, uh, you know, the situation that Cranmer, and, and I think Cranmer would certainly certainly recognize that, and that's the context for the homilies, the books of homilies that he composed, which were intended to fill in the gap, so to speak, until such time as preachers could be trained properly to then do it for themselves. And so a reformed liturgy from Bootser's point of view, even if you just, even if you reform, if you corrected a lot of the errors of the liturgy, reformed liturgy was not going to be enough without preaching and consequent understanding of how everything was rooted in the word. And, and the fact is, is that, you know, I think that an argument can be made that the quality of parish priests was not as dire as the polemics of the day would have you to believe. But neither was it as good as, uh, as, as was needed, and that there were still an awful lot of parish priests who basically came to their, to their position by kind of on-the-job training, rather than being university graduates. Right. And, uh, and so, you know, Bootser perceived this, and I'm sure he perceived this by his own observation, and he understood this from his conversations with Thomas Cranmer. And so... He wanted to stress the importance, which I'm sure Cranmer already recognized, the importance of having adequate ministers of the word, that there are just not enough of them at this point for the challenge that faced the church. And they needed to work harder on, on, on cultivating a, a cadre, a cohort of ministers who could preach lively word, uh, lively sermons rather than ones from the book of homilies right. and, and, and grow the people in the faith. Sure. Um, yeah, you, you mentioned that Booster also had a concern that services were being, uh, uh, as, as you said, confined to the choir, um, that Booster wanted this obviously no longer to be the case. Um, I guess, what, 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 what do you mean confined to the choir? What did that look like on a typical uh, uh, mass or liturgy? What, what was it like? Was it priest and choir then? What, what did that right, look like? Right, right. Well, I mean, putting it, I'm sure, much too simply, as you would know, the typical church would have a, a choir and a, a, a church in this day, and, and I'm sure for for all, all, the way, all the way to the present, but we're talking about the 16th century. So you'd have a choir screen that served to separate the sanctuary, the, the high altar, from the nave of the church, and it would separate the, the, the clergy from the lay people. And uh, <clears throat> the laity could only approach the latter, uh, the, the, the sanctuary, uh, only approach the choir screen at the communion rail. 
And so practically speaking, and this is one of the things that Bootser talks about in, in the censura, practically speaking, one of the results of this was is that the further back from the choir screen you were, I mean, the acoustics weren't always all that great anyway, but the further back from the choir screen you were, the less you would hear. So you'd know that something was going on. You could see visually that the, that the, that the ceremony of that the Eucharist was being celebrated. You knew, I mean, you had the ringing of the bell. You, you knew the signals of what was going on, but you wouldn't understand, you wouldn't hear it to understand. And so this meant that clergy were seen as separate from the laity. And it also meant that for far too many of the people, uh, far too many of the laity, that just being present in the church to witness from a distance, even if you don't hear it, to witness from a distance what was going on was all that was sufficient for attending worship, whether you understood what was being said or not. And the lady must hear and understand, Bootser firmly believes, for true worship to take place. And so, you know, his, his concern was is that the separation of the people by the choir screen and the fact that the people, uh, many of them don't really have any hearing of what's going on tended to separate, I mean, it tended to reinforce the separation, the distinction between lay people and clergy within the church. And, and you know, approaching it from the perspective of, of Luther and the Reformation and the priesthood of all believers was mm-hmm. fundamentally undermined in that respect. Sure. Um, and uh, so there's lots of uh, things about, uh, it, it's funny because I, uh, one of the things that attracted me um, to the Anglican tradition, uh, why I was attracted to the coming to the, the Episcopal Church. I was raised Lutheran, but, but I became Episcopalian at 13. And that whole ethos of uh, middle way uh, via media, if you will, kind of was uh, an attractive point. Many scholars make strong arguments, for instance, that Anglicanism wasn't uh, actually some middle way before pro- uh, between Protestant and Roman Catholicism, but more so a middle way of sorts of navigating the different... Uh, theological strands of the 16th, 17th century, uh, you know, separatists versus establishmentarians, Puritans versus non, you know, so forth. Um, but there's always been a sense of balance about Anglicanism. So when I'm, I'm reading uh, things about rituals, high ceremonies, vestments, and imagery um, being uh, so like uh, uh, that Bootser was a was so against a lot of, I was like, Oh, he's not as uh he's not the moderate. I thought he was, I thought he was like, you know, and so, uh, but it's, so it's interesting kind of learning about kind of his big picture visions, but also his kind of practical steps. Um, and, uh, and so th- this episode's making me question, how, question how Protestant I really am, even though I, I consider myself so much an heir of the reformation, but, uh, but, but, but saying that booster had a, uh, he in, anticipated an end of church vestments. Um, and uh, I'm not a highly, uh, if you were to see me on a Sunday, I mean, we're, we're kind of broad church at St. Mark's. And, you know, I see some of these pictures online of people wearing these fancy katas and everything. And, and, and I get it, like all this pomp and circumstance, like uh, it's so much of uh, people can, that can turn into the object of devotion over mm-hmm. Jesus. I totally get that. But also, yeah. um, I get that. I, I also like a uh, tasteful vestments at the same uh, 
time, you know, <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I'm totally comfortable with them. <clears throat> investments were a highly sensitive issue for Bootser. And uh, as you say, investments in themselves, uh, from my next question, uh, investments in themselves were not necessarily objectionable to him. What was it about investments that he found um, objection, objectionable? Well, I think it's in light of what we considered already, the, uh, the, the question of continuity and discontinuity. A complete continuity of vestments, you know, continuing to use everything that had been true in worship before the Reformation, left people holding to a sharp discontinuity between clergy and laity that marked the clergy off as distinctive in sure. some exalted way, and a strong continuity with previous practice. And so, you know, visually it looks the same. So, what's the difference? Especially right. if you don't have adequate preaching to. Right to promote the, uh, the, the understanding of the gospel. And Bootser was pragmatic about their continued use, but he was not all that keen on it beyond a certain point. Now, as you, know, you probably know there's a vestments controversy in, in uh, Edward VI reign. John Hooper, mm-hmm. Bishop of Gloucester, was quite keen on not having any vestments whatsoever, whereas Thomas Cranmer said, no, we're going to retain that. Mm-hmm. And in my position as archbishop, I'm telling you, you've got to have these vestments when you are ordained, when you are consecrated as the Bishop of Gloucester. And uh, although Bootser was sympathetic to the non-vestment side of the argument, and therefore sympathetic to Hooper, he took the side of Cranmer on the basis of authority within the church. And he also thought, you know, we don't need to tear the church apart sure. about this particular issue. Just, you know, not to, to put it very colloquial in terms of you wouldn't use, suck it up, wear them, and we'll hopefully have changes further down the road. Um, but he was, he really was rather ambivalent about it. He was prepared to go with them for a time, but he ultimately hoped that they would fall by the wayside, so to speak, that they would no longer be perceived as necessary or even proper. Yeah, because I think um, it, it, he imagined, you know, he, I could see that where um, if you um, if you imagine if you can if you can't imagine church without vestments, there's an issue, right? <laughs> uh, it's because it's it's um, if you're saying that we absolutely have to keep them, and then um, that can it can clearly lend its, aesthetically lend itself to marking off an elite spiritually elite group of people from the rest of the people. I'm, uh, I mean, that makes sense. Um, so, yeah, you're right. The John Hooper contract. I mean, I, it's been a while since I've read about that, but yes. Uh, so, yeah. Bootser, you know, Bootser, was concerned, Bootser was concerned that if Hooper held the line firmly on that, then the diocese would be deprived of his preaching. Sure. And his yeah. preaching is what really was fundamental. Right. Which goes back to some of the things we've already talked about. This has got to go forward for a proper reform to take place. Yeah, the priority. So he was concerned that Cooper is going to let this thing stop him from being an effective preacher. Yeah. Yeah. The ministry that the priority of the word being proclaimed, um, definitely more important than maybe some of those other debates. Uh, so Bootser, uh, your article mentioned Bootser was in favor of the distribution of bread and administering of the Eucharist to be placed. Um, I found this part very interesting in your, in your article because it shows how, removed we are from that time because I, I don't know it, it, in the customs of like the Episcopal church where I serve and most Episcopal churches I've been, uh, 
I've seen people receive uh, the host or the bread on their tongue and in their hand. And it's kind of um, what, where people's piety are, right? Where they feel comfortable. <laughs> right? um, but you notice how, or you, you noted how distrib- distribution of bread and administering the Eucharist was to be placed in communicants' hands ra- rather than on their tongue. The latter he saw, blessing on the tongue, uh, as, as uh, being uh, communicating a superstitious type message. And maybe, and it may be hard maybe hard, like I said, for us to grasp in the, as modern readers, but why would the practice of placing it on the tongue be seen by uh, reformers as superstitious? I, I was really curious about that point. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's as you can appreciate, a complicated question for the Reformation. And Bootser is complicated in this point, occupying as he does a sort of a middle point between Luther, the Lutheran conception of the present of presence of Christ in, with, and under the bread while the bread remained bread, and the Swiss conception of Christ's presence as spiritual, and thus the bread signifying representing the body of Christ, but as nothing more than bread. And in what he says about the service in the Sincera Butzer is clearly uh, on the Swiss end of the, of the spectrum of belief, and thus he was emphatic that just as at the first Lord's Supper, Jesus distributed broken bread into the hands of his disciples, so too this should be the case for contemporary disciples. And if I could, uh, if, I, if you don't mind, if I could read from, uh, from yeah, the article, what I say about that. Yeah, uh, I'm picking, uh, it's on uh, page 119. Bootser urged that the statement at the end of this rubric explaining that no one must think to receive less of Christ than in a part of the bread than the whole it should be extended to make clear that the body of Christ is not to be thought of as locally shut up inside each piece. Bootser is emphatic that the rubric directing the bread be put directly into the mouth of the communicant be altered to direct that the bread be placed into the hands of the communicant. This was in keeping with the practice of the Strasbourg churches where the broken bread was placed into the hands of communicants and the chalice was passed from hand to hand. He recognized that the rubric was intended, the, the, the rubric and the prayer book was intended to prevent some communicants from using the bread for superstitious, superstitious practices, stealing away with the bread for later use rather than eating it. But as a consequence, a twofold superstition was in fact fostered. First, a false honor was given to the sacramental element itself, giving the laity to understand that something spiritual inhered in the bread apart from the ceremony and that it was no longer bread at all. And second, it gave a false honor to the priests, as if they alone were worthy of handling the elements. When, turn, when he turned to the offertory, Bootser argued that the paragraph relating to the amount of bread and wine to be used should be altered. It directed that in preparation for the sacrament, the priests take only as much bread and wine as is needed for the number of communicants present at the service and set, amount, set, the, set this amount aside. As it stood, it gave rise to a superstition regarding the elements once they had been consecrated, leading the laity to believe that the elements were different after consecration. He stressed that it was necessary to make the people understand that apart from their use in the communion service itself, the elements remained bread and wine, a point that had also been made in his church order for Cologne. Okay, so... um different dimensions of, of reasoning for, for, for that, his insistence on going with one rubric and discontinuing 
the administering of, of the bread in, in that certain way. Uh, some biblical precedents there as he saw it, as well as, yeah, kind of going back to the idea of uh, clericalism mm-hmm. that he was trying to combat. And that goes back to the vest, the vestment thing uh, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, uh, on the topic of superstition, that, that's also why you say Booster was opposed to various gestures, manual actions that were, you know, performed right. in the celebration right. of the communion. Uh, I, I think he kind of covered it. I mean, he, he was opposed to, um, but he, he was opposed to really a lot of, a lot of these. Um, so anything more you want to say on just the superstitious piece? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I, I think we pretty much covered it. I mean, it had to do with the centuries of popular beliefs that attached themselves to the use of a lot of the ritual, the visual ritual and worship. And, and Bootser's critique, of course, is that they weren't grounded in the word. Yeah, but he appears to believe that they are so infused in the minds of people. I mean, because earlier he said, you know, there, there are places where he says it's, you know, where I said that he can be seen as taking a diaphoristic approach to, to things, that things indifferent, it, it, you know, Scripture doesn't demand, command it, but it doesn't forbid it. And so there's room for discretion. But Bootser's concern, I think, was that these a lot of these rituals have become so infused through centuries of of practice, so infused with superstition on the part of the laity that he want, that he that he recognizes these have to be removed entirely, even if it can be shown that they're not in contradiction to the word, even if they could be treated as diaphoras, things indifferent, because of the the uh, the views of the people and the superstitions that they have attached to these, these have to go. And so he was, in some respects, he could be more zealous without necessarily holding to a uh, regulative, reformed type regulative principle, but just recognizing, practically speaking, we can keep some things because that will aid us in the ultimate goal of achieving the kind of reform we want. But some other things have to go. Uh, we, can't, we can't allow those to continue going forward. Right. Um... So uh, kind of uh, wrapping up with, with um, your article, you, uh, you kind of sum it up with that Luber, or uh, Booster, uh, I was reading Labor, Luber, Booster, <laughs> Booster's, uh, Booster's uh, labor in composing uh, the censura or the commentary mm-hmm. on the 1549 prayer book. Um, you, you say, quote, had not gone unrewarded. It, it is suggestive, suggestive that in almost every instance where Bootser proposed a change of use, conduct, or action that clarified evangelical teaching, there appears to have been a corresponding revision, unquote. So do you believe there is a strong case to make that Bootser had a strong influence on the, on the subsequent prayer book, the 1552 uh, prayer book? Um, I mean, and I'm also curious, kind of a maybe a sub question to that in different parts of your research and because you've been studying him for a long time, have you seen his influence differently or have you said, well, maybe I overestimated it before, maybe I underestimated it before, you know, um, I guess. No, I I stand by what I uh, sketched at the end of the article of the ways in which you can see a, a definite response in the 52 prayer book from what Boothra suggested in his critique in the censura. Um, I mean, I won't, I'm, I'm not going to, you know, I, I won't be one of these to say, well, my guy was clearly the most decisive influence of all upon this, and, and, and we owe everything to him for this. 
but but I do think that they, his influence was considerable. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. We'll just leave it yeah. at that. Yeah. Um, well, uh, and you mentioned though that this is always though it's you know to an extent been a speculative question. I'm, I'm reading your article and not and yours and other things I've read. It's it's pretty clear he had a like you said he's not the most influential person it's not like he's the author of anglican liturgy or anything like that but yeah. neither is Cramner. but they're both of them you know had significant parts in this and um so uh even though to an extent it's kind of speculative uh that there there is nevertheless you said there was a 1540 a copy of a 1549 prayer book uh just they discovered a copy with lots of notes written in it uh recording bootser's advice um mm-hmm. which is very interesting Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you wrote about this at the end of the article. You know, at the time you wrote on this, that um, it had not yet been discovered whom this copy belonged to. Has this been determined since? Uh, do we know more of its origin? We're closer to an answer on that. Um, a, a book was published in 2018 uh, that has a couple of articles that address Bootser in the Book of Common Prayer. The book is Strasbourg and the English Reformation. Alsatian Contributions to the Formation of the Church of England. Uh, one of the essays is by a man named Stuart Ludbrook, which is directly on the censura by Bootser and Cranner's prayer book of 1549. But the other essay is by the Reverend Canon Dr. Ashley Knoll, and is very much to this point that you raise. And his article is Bootser's Writings in Cranmer's Edwardian Eucharistic Papers. And he has examined this copy in the which is in the uh, National Library, the Bibliothèque Nationale Française, and he has determined that it was almost certainly used by the revision committee, and that many of the changes that were made that are annotated in this do show that there is a line to be drawn from Bootser's censura to the 1552 prayer book. And one thing to note is that the censura was not published until 1577. And so whoever made these annotations in this copy of the prayer book used a manuscript copy of the text, of which, so far as we know, there are only three. Uh, Bootser's copy, which is found in the papers of the, of the Parker Library at Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, which is incidentally where the contents of Bootser's study ended up at his death. Uh, a copy held by New College Oxford, and a recently discovered third copy in the collection of the uh, Bibliothèque Nationale Française pa- of the papers that were originally owned by Cramner's secretary, Pierre Alexander. And, and so the reason that the, it, 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 you have this conjunction between the, the papers of, 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 well, it's interesting just to see that you have the conjunction of the papers of, uh, Cranmer's Eucharistic papers and a copy of the 49 prayer book with annotations showing that someone was working with Bootser's copy of the censure all together in the same place. So I think it's almost certain that uh, that Bootser had, I mean, this is a way to demonstrate that Bootser had demonstrable influence. We don't know yet who owns that copy, you know, whether we can speak in terms of a particular person owning that copy, but it was very close to the circle that was involved in making the revisions. Well, like the conjunction you say uh, points to it being very highly, highly, highly likely. <laughs> so yeah. uh, great. Uh, yeah, I was curious because I, I don't know, when, when did you write this article? It's been a few years. A while. A it while, a while. Yeah. 
So yeah. yeah, so I was just curious, but I'm like, oh, you know, I know that thing's set with more people studying it and trying to determine. So that's interesting. Um, and uh, you're you're you dropped the uh, you've been like the fifth person on the show to drop the name Ashley Knoll. I really need to read more Ashley Knoll because yeah, he's yeah. apparently a very important Cramner English Reformation guy. So uh, yes, yes. Uh, well, he's a great guy. Yeah. Um, well, it's been a pleasure to have you on this show. Uh, thank you so much. I, I mean, I remember sending an email out to uh, to you uh, a little while ago, and um, you know, and and I got a response back, and I'm like, wow, that's this. I was excited. I was. Ex- I've been excited ever since. And um, well, I hope it lived up to your expectations. I don't know too many people to uh, that uh, are really into the study of Lutzer. Um, and so, I mean, you're, you know, to have an authority on it on the show has been a, a huge honor. So, uh, but yeah, thank you. Um, and well, thank you. And, uh, we will, uh, have the episode up soon because of course for our listeners know these are pre-recorded. We don't take phone calls or anything. We don't put our guests on the spot like this, <laughs> so, but, uh, but thank you, uh, Dr. Amos and, uh, God bless your, uh, continued uh, teaching and uh, and all the the work you do and all and and in your uh, scholarly endeavors and studies. So thank you. Thank you. To have I you appreciate on. it. It's been a pleasure. All right. Take care. Care. Bye. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Doth Protest Too Much. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show, please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel, we can take it and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at dothprotesttoomuchpodcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.